Welcome to B2B Impact by BDB. Join me, Matt Smith, CEO of BDB, and Oliver Brewood, BDB's Head of Digital and Technology, as we get together to discuss the myriad of trends, topics, opportunities, and developments in the world of B2B marketing and communications. Our aim is to arm you with content, opinions, and insights that deliver lasting and meaningful impact across the B2B community, helping the global businesses and brands we partner with navigate their way through the information and communication revolution. Are you ready to make an impact? Hi, everybody, and welcome back to uh, this week's edition of the B2B Impacts podcast. Um, we've been trawling the news, uh, the websites and reviews and trends and topics that caught our, uh, caught our attention, I guess, over the last uh, week or so since the last episode went out to you guys. Um, so we're going to kick off this week by talking around something which has been lovingly termed the product delusion. Um, do you want to give us an overview of that one, Ollie, in terms of, I guess, the, the, the starting point for the article, and then we can dive into it? Sure. I think the, uh, the short uh, summary of it is effectively that what we see in, in B2B is a lot of ads that end up being really product-focused mm-hmm. instead of it being, especially if you're looking at B2C, where it's often a lot more em- emotive yeah. or fun or playful or mm-hmm. emotional one way or another. In B2B, we tend to go, our product has these features, therefore you should buy our product. Yeah. Which in the game is primarily referred to as value proposition selling, but almost like the product's value proposition as opposed to the brand or the business. Yeah. So I think I think one of the examples they use in the article was around um, more tech-based brands, I guess, but saying you know, our processor is X amount faster, 80% faster than the market, product-based feature that you're actually trying to amplify to your market, which is assuming that they're in market to buy, I guess, yeah. at that point. It's assuming they're in market to buy, and it's assuming that they're kind of in that, logical comparison mode mm-hmm. which in general we might like to think of ourselves as logical people but humans aren't that logical mm-hmm. um and i think there's there's plenty of studies out there that kind of emphasize the the uh kind of the way the brain works and, and the fact that if you are going to be going down that more logical route mm-hmm. you're obviously not going to be you're often rather not going to be remembered if you go down the emotional route it's much more likely it's something that sticks with you and more likely to have an impact so i'll be top of mind because there's, there's so many more distractions now as well isn't there? so the chance of actually sitting down and actually completing some research without being interrupted in the meantime i guess is almost about driving more again awareness but being top of mind so because i mean we can get to the root cause of it in a minute but i guess how much evaluation do you think personally genuinely takes place in b2b because I think it's something that's been talked about a lot in recent years. There's more comparison. There's more um, research being done before people want to commit to a purchase. There's kind of these stats about 80-20 being used around. They do 80% of the, the buying process themselves, uh, the prospect before they actually want to speak to a sales for the final 20%. Do you think that's standing the test of time? I think to some extent, if you're going to buy something, there's a good chance you're doing research first. In B2C or B2B? I would say in both, but I think for me, and I guess obviously there's a chance of being biased. I'm gonna, you know, let's, let's take a tech platform for example. Though within any category, you've probably got hundreds of choices to narrow down. Yep. We've obviously recently gone through that with one of our uh, tech platforms, going through that sort of process, and you you don't have the time to evaluate them all. Mm-hmm. You have to pick the ones that float to the top for whatever reason. Yeah, which I think is is then when you get into the interesting facts around like, well, what makes you float to the top? What makes you one of the, the ones I've even started to look at? But ironically with that, the exercise we've just been through personally at the agency here, we ended up going with the top of mind, market leader, most well-known, well-advertised offering. It also happens to be the one that's best fit for us, we think. Yeah. But 
I don't think there's any coincidence. Yeah, and I'd say if you look at some of the others that we were weighing up in when we were making that software selection, then some of the others that we looked at were others that were top of mind because they did a lot of mm-hmm. advertising. Yeah, some of them were because they you know scored well, but a lot of them were just because we'd we'd seen ads about them, so we thought, hey, let's have a look at these and see if they compare. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm a bit skeptical about the level of comparison that goes on. And maybe it's, it depends what market and what sector you're in. Um, but I think the article that you, you particularly referenced also pulled out like banks as an example. So you're quite often not in not necessarily in market for a banking product, but when you want one, and how much comparison do people genuinely do about over banking products? And I guess that's it might come down to the individual, um, which might be a nice hook into some ABM chat in a bit. But in the sense of the individual's aspirations of most people might do a bit of research would probably end up going with the more convenient option at the yeah. time. And I think in B2B, when you've got longevity in relationships, contractual relationships, you're used to buying or distributing with a certain partner, to jump ship and change is quite a big a big move. And how, I don't know how much genuine research goes into that or whether you put your default human back to that's more convenient. Yeah, I think I guess it'll depend a lot on the specific situation and and whether you've already got an incumbent. I think if there's mm. an incumbent in any situation, you've got a propensity to stick with them unless yeah. unless you know there's a reason to change. Yeah. Um, but I think when obviously I get like you say, it depends a lot from person to person. But if, when somebody's got um, some level of personal responsibility for making the decision, mm-hmm. you'll typically want to be reassured that the features or the price or whatever it might be you're getting a good deal for what you're what you're going after okay which i think inherently needs some level of comparison yeah okay and in, in terms of the root cause of why we're seeing um content or ads in this case in b2b still being quite rational and product focused and quite inside out i guess in terms of the way you'd approach it what what in your opinion is the root cause of that because i mean i feel like this is something it's almost lazily banded around a little bit, like in the article here, there's an assumption that all B2B brands are, are, are lazily talking about products. I can confirm from our personal client base and our fee-paying clients that that isn't the case. So sometimes you start there with some of them, but I think there's I think there's a growing acceptance that they've got to go away from that and go further back up through the buying cycle in a way. Yeah, but I think from, from what I've seen, it's not as common. There are definitely examples of it, but it doesn't yeah. seem to be as common. So I, th- I think it's still fair to say that in B2B, there is a propensity to have more kind of product-led yeah. advertising. Um, <clears throat> why? So, why? I, 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 don't, I, I guess it really depends. I mean, it's easy to make assumptions. I, 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 I make an assumption that I think B2B companies tend to be a little bit more conservative, yep. a bit more old school and think and, and more focused on kind of, oh, we've got this good product, let's tell people we've got a good product. Yep. B2C of long established, probably going back for sort of 70 plus years, yep. that's not the right route to, to win people over. You don't get swayed by facts alone. Yep. That's why nearly ad, every ad you see on TV these days is, is trying to tug at your heartstrings one way or another. Yeah. But he's, try, he's trying to he's trying to create that emotional investment in the brand. Mm-hmm. I think you raised it earlier, but it's the good example that they use in the article, which I'm sure Jim will link up somewhere in the episode for us. But in the sense of the they use the, the example of Coke, don't they, in the article, yeah. which I thought was to record with me, and I think it made you smack smirk as well. In the sense of you're saying you know Coke without the you know the nice polar, cuddly polar bears and all the examples that they used in the adverts there to get you to connect with that brand and the Christmas trucks and so on. Yeah, yeah. 
really probably B2B would be described as brown, fizzy and sweet. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here. Or more the value product proposition sell of, you know, 98% effectively reducing first. Yeah. So I, I'm not suggesting the B2B brands need to go out there and, you know, smash a load of polar bears and, and make it all cuddly and warm. But there's something around creating that emotional connection yeah. and attachment to a brand, as you say, which then holds it in the memory for when you are in market to make a purchase. Adobe had a really good example that we've uh, talked about, I think, in the past, which was um, using humor where you had you had the, yes. the guy going yeah. out. Uh, it, was, it was all uh, like CD and, and going out in the, the streets at night where it's not, there weren't a lot of street lights and he was like looking to buy illicit clicks for yeah. his website and it yeah. was all kind of tongue-in-cheek, obviously making it look a bit like he was buying even that's evidence in itself because I think we I think we came across that in 2019 I've got it in, in my mind because we used it in one of the presentations in Geneva as an example of creating a motive connection in B2B but that's still top of mind as one of the articles now isn't yeah. it three years later with this I think a big part of the reason why is we don't see a lot of that stuff in no, B2B no. I think we're afraid to use humour yeah. I think the other example that we often bring up is a Jean-Claude Van Damme yep. Volvo commercial yeah, yeah. it's humour it's a recognisable figure mm-hmm. it's 100% B2B but because it's a kind of standout thing even years after we've first seen it yep. it's produced, we're still talking about it do, do you think you, we're ever going to see it move more in that direction like towards being a purely emotive based ad let's just say for the sake of it because i don't know the last six seven eight nine years this has been a conversation taking place that b2b and b2c are becoming closer and the one and the same and it's human to human and i've read every book going i'm sure you have but in the sense of in reality you're not seeing it come through into the work yet is that is that because of the the age of the stakeholders the sectors that we work with i think everything's really shows a slow shift and you don't see anything happen quickly yeah um so I think those elements are part of it. And yeah, over time, we might see it shift. I don't think it'll ever necessarily be identical, but I think those elements are slowly seeping in. Mm-hmm. And it's just a case of, of needing to see more of that. Do you think you'll see it as you get younger generational marketers in-house at, at large businesses and brands, people who have, who have been <clears throat> digital natives that have come up through businesses? And Essentially, but I think part of it's about them becoming decision makers <coughs> themselves. Yeah. Because if if you have somebody that you know just entered the, the workforce or not been around mm-hmm. as long and they're 20-something and they say, hey, we've got this cool creative idea, it's very yeah. easy for them to then get quashed by somebody that says, this company is more uh, serious than that. And yeah. we mustn't do that sort of, you know, advert or campaign or whatever it might be. And do you think it's do you think it, you think you'll see certain sectors being more adventurous in B two B? Because I guess the sectors that we work within are quite uh, technical. Yeah, because um, I think it'll vary depend on. As with anything, you should start about by thinking who are your audience and mm-hmm. how do we connect with them. And if your audience are going to be. Um, more serious or less open to, to that sort of thing, then maybe it makes sense to go down a different route. That doesn't mean to say it's not emotive. It might just mean don't throw lots of humor into your ad. Obviously, all, this all yeah. comes down to what your brand's tone of voice is and what will resonate well with your audience. Whereas I guess when you've got something that's a little bit more of a younger or, or kind of quirky target audience yeah. Yeah. where you might find yourself, um, maybe a tech platform might be in that sort of place, marketing platforms, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's more appropriate for them to throw in lots of humour. Sure. I think one of the other points that I pulled out, which is just an interesting point to touch on in the same article, really, but was talking around who who genuinely controls marketing in B2B. So is it the marketing department or is it actually the sales team, the product team, the C-suite and finance in effect? And you do see that across some of our 
ex-clients, I would say, mm. where marketing was almost a second-tier activity, potentially, in, in the way you'd rank it. So even um, the CMOs may, may not be getting the gravitas they need around the table. Yeah. Um, I suppose <clears> one big difference between a B2B and a B2C organization is the sales function mm-hmm. is, is a major aspect of what runs a, a B2B business. Yeah. I was in B2C, that's happening much further down the chain um, via, via retailers, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, it does probably more orient around them and what they think they need and what needs to be fed into to, to their um, kind of sales process. Which is exactly what's feeding the inside-out approach of speaking about products, isn't it? If you know what I mean? Rather than allowing people to actually build brand and brand connectivity. Yeah. Um, and as I say, it's not these aren't um, carte blanche statements. So it's not, we're not saying every B2B brand is doing this. And that's why I think the article's interesting but slightly lazy and... As most articles are, they're trying to grab, <laughs> grab headlines yeah. and grab your attention, which it clearly served its purpose for us. But. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with anything. I think we should could caveat and just say that with, with any content you see online, including this podcast, take what you need, yeah. weigh it with your own situation in mind, and then apply the parts that are relevant. Yeah. Uh, link, link to that, one of the other articles that we pulled to our uh, attention we wanted to have a chat through with you today was uh, what's been lovely termed here, the golden age of B2B marketing and the flippening. Yeah. Do you, want to, do you want to give an overview of that one and then we'll get stuck in? So straight away this caught my eye because I had to find out what they meant by flipping Yeah, I, I, did, <laughs> I did the same. Yeah. So um, effectively what they're talking about, um, the, the three stats, I don't know if you want to talk about all three. I'll talk about two of them for now and you can talk about the third if I'll you want. I'll talk about the one that I don't like. Yeah. So what they effectively say is, is something I know we've touched on recently in one of the previous um, episodes is that effectively that 95% of your buyers aren't currently in market. Mm-hmm. You're, you're only really about, about 5% of people at a time that are really in market. Despite that, we put a huge amount of, of our budgets towards trying to convert the 5% that are in market and neglecting the 95% that aren't in market, even though we know contracts are going to expire and they are going to be in market again at some point, probably within the next 12 months, one mm-hmm. way or another. Yet only 8% of, of advertising reportedly is, is brand-focused and therefore helping to convert that 95% when they are in market. Mm-hmm. So effectively, what they're saying is that we'll, we should be seeing a flip where that <coughs> 8% um, is, it becomes a much larger percentage yeah. to actually focus on. on yeah, they're, they're that saying the flip in, in effect is, is purposely targeting people that aren't in market, aren't they? They're yeah. trying to push them into that 5% category. That they're so they were talking about the 8% brand focus becoming like a 51% brand focus because that'll help to, you know, position your business for the long term which makes perfect sense off the back of the previous conversation mm-hmm. um around the, the product delusion that's going on at the minute because i guess the product delusion is that five percent where they're focusing the yeah. attention at the minute the other stat that was referenced in the article that um that i don't i don't agree with i understand the point it's trying to link to so it's saying by thinking about the people that aren't in market you're actually looking at future sales and future targets so it says it's, it's saying that 80 percent of your cash flows are linked to um Eighty percent of your business valuation is linked to future cash flows, which the accountant in me that that the has in the back of my neck stood up a bit because it's not technically correct what they're referring to. But I understand that the point that they're trying to make that realistically, when you think about spend and return on investment to get the future sales that you need to obviously justify mm-hmm. a valuation, you need to continue to to make um, X amount of money that you obviously value a company for, and those future cash flows have got to come from somewhere, and it's unlikely it's solely coming from the five percent that, yeah. that are in market to buy. Yeah, um, and I think it's, it's possibly worth noting that I don't think we're advocating turning off things like lead gen campaigns. Sure. We're not saying that product adverts don't have a place mm-hmm. because, as we know, there's a there's a buying journey, a buying funnel, however you want to 
term it. And there are people that are in decision-making mode and they need key information to be put in front of them that might help them sway and make a decision. But effectively, we're just saying that's not the whole picture. And yep. by just focusing all of our time and budget on, on people that are near purchase, we're missing out on a lot of people that will be near purchase in the future. Do you think that's... I'm just trying to work out why this is the case. Obviously, we've touched on the B2B kind of uh, landscape earlier on in terms of product focused and the teams and who controls marketing. But, but in reality, do you think a lot of the big businesses and brands out there in the B2B space have such retained relationships that they think their stakeholders are always in market in a way, if that makes sense? They don't, is there such a need or a drive on big B2B brands to go out and win new business versus maintaining their existing business? I mean, I guess that's a, a company to company decision, but I think it, it depends what your market share is, I suppose, yeah. what the competitive landscape's like. If you know you've got a large portion of your of the market share already, then mm-hmm. clearly it makes sense to focus a lot on retention mm-hmm. um, and making. And I think in general, there's lots of evidence that shows that it makes a lot of sense to focus on retention as a primary activity yeah. because it's cheaper than acquiring new new business. Yeah. Um, but let's assume that's all in order. Then, if there's still market share out there to be to be got yeah. then it then for me it makes sense to be going out there and attempting to win it i'd also argue it's if you if you did have that mentality that you don't really need to try that hard because you've established it's probably a leaky bucket in the yeah. sense that if somebody else is constantly top of mind and, and they're marketing heavily and connecting brands and creating a more emotional connection or even just there they're there continually like a dripping tap eventually somebody's head will turn and you'll end up using losing market share so when we're talking strategically as clients about protecting market share or yeah. their position in the market you do need to be looking straight across that bank. You look cycle. at the likes of Intel, at Coke, and all these people that are, are market leaders. They don't turn off their advertising because they're already huge. If they did, they'd start losing market share to competitors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another point that I thought the article was quite amusing that it pulled out was that marketeers are part of the problem. So in the sense of when, you, when you've got creatives or brand owners um, talking, and I've heard this in meetings, that we need to make people fall in love with our brand and we need to make uh, an emotional connection and when you're using words like that to C-suites, product owners, finance, procurement, it just sounds like flowery marketing nonsense. Yeah. So you've got to be really careful, I think, as a marketer of how you sell this in internally. Yeah. So talking about being top of mind, talking about, um, you know, in, in the line of something, when somebody's looking to make that purchase, talking about pulling people through that funnel through balanced and strategically considered content as opposed to the flouncy stuff of well, yeah. we need to make people fall in love with us because I think in B2B a lot of C-suites and, and, and key stakeholders today is just close off yeah. to that kind of language and I've heard it a lot in different brands no I agree because it's, it's, <clears throat> we're effectively saying the same thing but it's two two different ways of describing things that will mean that one audience will turn off and I think whether you're talking internally or not you need to be thinking about how to talk to to your mm-hmm. audience if you if you want to get the outcome that you want well I think one, one sounds like it's intrinsically got more of an ROI attached to it one sounds very loose and, and floaty and romantic about falling yeah. in love with and the even if the like brand awareness activities we know it's hard to demonstrate an ROI mm-hmm. but what I guess what we're not saying is there's no ROI you're saying we are expecting because of this activity that over the course of time that we're going to get more people coming to us naturally as, as they are uh, coming into market. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we need to be looking long-term, years out, at, at the trend versus our advertising spend to see mm-hmm. what, what effect it's having. True. We're not saying we think that people will rate us higher on a like cuddly scale at the end yep. of the 12-month period. Yeah, yep. okay. And then tied to that, one of the last articles I was going to pick on before we uh, wrap up this conscious of time was around well, what's been termed here account-based madness, the new craze in B2B. So 
<clears throat> for anybody that hasn't come across it yet or hasn't heard about account-based marketing, I'll probably describe it here in, in the way that the article says you shouldn't, but that's the reality of the situation at the minute. So account-based marketing is a more personalized form of marketing, um, replacing what anecdotally has been referred to in, in many articles, um, the net with a spear. So rather than casting the wide net, hoping you catch some relevant um, leads, um, almost hyper-personalization and um, personalized communications flow so the person feels more valued, it's more relevant, um, and they're not getting hit with as much redundant information, I guess. That's the way I'd always explain what ABM is. Yeah. Um, we've run a couple of really successful ABM campaigns for clients internally here, so I don't think that explanation is flawed or wrong. Th this article's arguing in a way that it doesn't work, and that shouldn't be the explanation yeah, for and I think there's, I think there's... I guess everything, every situation is slightly different and you mm -hmm. need to, again, take things with a, a grain of salt. I think what they're trying to get to is that you could sit down completely separate to knowing anything else about the market landscape and pick 10 B2B organizations that we'd love to work with. Mm -hmm. And then we could start putting ad campaigns out there to try and get them. That's going to be intrinsically time consuming, especially mm -hmm. if we're trying to find out about the buyers in those different organizations. We yep. don't Bearing in mind, we, we won't know anything about the structure of those organizations, who the decision makers are. Yep. And we'll, we can start bombarding them with things that are incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. It'll help them pay more attention to us, I would expect, because yep. they're, they're receiving something that has their company name on it, or we're referring to them by name, or we've sent them a gift because we've seen what they liked on Twitter or whatever it might be. So we can do all that stuff, but they might not be in market. We've established 95% of people aren't in market anytime. So maybe it's all wasted effort and we've spent thousands at least per company doing that. Yep. Whereas I guess conversely, what the article is kind of uh, proposing is that you effectively almost take company lists and group them based on their similarities as opposed to it being... You could argue it's ABM. Depends what level you're doing it on. Well, in it, terms of... if you, ABM is t often described in, you know, are we talking one-to-one? One one, are we one talking one-to-few, one-to-many, one exactly. etc. Yeah, so this yeah. is more the one-to... Depending how you want to argue it, mm -hmm. one-to-few companies or one-to-many individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so effectively, it's, it's saying... Yeah, targeting lists of companies that you group together based on their similarities, either because of the company size mm -hmm. and, and industry that they operate in, that you know they're likely to have these three or four common challenges, and you make sure that your advertising campaigns talk to the three or four common challenges you know companies of that size in that industry are going to have that you can address with your products. Yep. And then you can have a different campaign to you know companies of different sizes or in different industries. As opposed to hyper-personalizing creative, which what it talks about here. Yeah. We can waste a lot of time, effort, money, resource, yeah. which ultimately statistically at the minute doesn't seem to say bears more yeah. fruits or and, and we've done both and had success with both I think when it comes to running like digital ad campaigns on LinkedIn for example <coughs> we often are running campaigns now that are targeting specific company lists mm -hmm. rather than it being you know targeting everybody within one industry or another based on LinkedIn's targeting options so you might you know upload a list of 100 or 200 companies and target them but that's yeah. that's that kind of one to uh, one to few slash one to many depending how you want to determine it type relationship and we've also gone the opposite uh, kind of side of things, where we have gone down, again, depending how you want to term it, either one-to-one -one or one-to-few, where we've had landing pages that are targeted specific companies, yep. and they've performed really, really well and got clients, you know, genuinely really uh, good levels of engagement and, you know, directly measurable ROI off the back of it, because mm -hmm. they had an innovative product and they were targeting a company that it was directly applicable to it's you know they've been really careful in the selection of who they wanted to, to talk to and they got you know 
direct meetings off the back of the campaign that resulted in commitments for work. Yeah, and I think I think like like most things in life and certainly in marketing, it is a case by case basis. There isn't a one, a one size fits all. So what I would say, the the article argues, you know, by not casting the net wide and going too hyper personalized, there's a risk you might miss out on leads that you would have previously got. And I think that comes down to knowing your customers and knowing your sales cycle and being honest with yourself about the level of level of success you've achieved in the past through some, some similar campaigns. If you find by casting the net wide, it results in a, uh, a a steady trickle of new business to you. You know, you simply don't want to be turning that off to go hyper personalized. Mm-hmm. If, however, you've been doing and, and wasting money in effect, I guess in a way with poor ROI or you know tangible return on investment against your spend. And maybe ABM could be a way to explore, but there's there's a middle ground somewhere, isn't it, for these things? And all I can say is when we've done it for clients so far, a well well strategically executed ABM, as you say, has paid real dividends. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's a lot of the key learning for us on that as a business and doing it with other businesses and brands is the amount of time it takes, which I guess is what this article is also getting at, that you could waste a lot of time to to not get the results you're after. But I would argue if you put the time in and do it well, there's a... You know, a re, a, re, a good a good chance you'll get yeah. the results that you're looking at from from what we've seen so far. Yeah. Um, the final thing you were going to mention Ollie, was Google Analytics Four, which yeah. you just left as a cliff edge for me. I don't really know where <laughs> this is going, but I just thought it was worth uh, flagging in case uh, anybody listening, you know, hasn't been keeping up to date with the news um, on Google Analytics. Real lovely technical topic, <clears throat> but effectively for years at this point, mm-hmm. we've been using uh, Google's U- Universal Analytics. Mm-hmm. I'd say, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I think we've been on that for five or six years at this point. Yep. It is being end of life in the near future. <clears throat> so from 2023, you will be uh, no longer able to gather any data from your websites okay. using Universal Analytics, and you will need to be using Google Analytics 4. The particular reason why I think this is worth mentioning is this isn't just Google Analytics 3 or, or Universal Analytics with a few added features. It is fundamentally different and will require uh, time investment to understand, to train, to make sure it's working correctly, mm-hmm. to make sure that you can actually run all those reports. They're dropping metrics entirely that have been part of Universal Analytics for years. So the bounce rate's gone in, right. in GA4. Um, replaced with something or do we not know yet? I'm assuming but off the top of my head I no couldn't idea. say but yeah. I think it's re- bounce rate in general causes a lot of confusion with people so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it's just trying to drop that in favour of other metrics that okay. are more straightforward sure. um, it's also not got a lot of kind of pre-built reporting so you have to build a lot of custom reports mm-hmm. for, it, for it to work and I think it connects really nicely with, with things like Google Data Studio for visualising the data that's in it but all of that's going to require some time investment uh, to, to get your head around I think the other thing that's worth noting is if you use Universal Analytics at the moment for like year-on-year comparisons, mm-hmm. you need to be setting up Google Analytics 4 imminently because if you don't have it set up by July, come July 2023, you won't have last year's data to compare against. Ah, okay. Right, so you lose the actual opening data sets. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. So effectively, what we're suggesting is at the moment, it's worth setting up a Google Analytics 4 property, running it in parallel with Universal Analytics. You can compare the both of them um, so you can you can see how they didn't both work and you have time to get familiarized with it. It also means that you'll have already started that data collection. You know, so and that is that a drop dead date in 2023? Is that like one's on, the other one's off, if you know what I mean? 1st of July, 2023, Universal Analytics will no longer process any further data. The only extra caveat there is if you're currently a analytics premium customer you've got a few extra months on that i think it becomes october instead of july um but effectively yeah it's time to take note and and familiarize yourself with with ga4 
uh, Google Analytics is deployed on over 60% of websites, so yeah. I doubt there's anybody listening that this doesn't really apply to, with the exception of the you know the few clients that have gone and uh, invested more heavily in the likes of Adobe Analytics. Obviously, you don't have to worry as much. Sure, <laughs> sure. Okay, well, I'm sure I'm sure that's a topic we're going to be featuring more in upcoming podcasts as more and more uh, news and announcements and revelations are made in that space. Um, thanks for joining us this week. Hope you've enjoyed the whistle stop tour of uh, say some of the articles and topics and trends that are catching our eye uh, we'll be scouring the the press and the articles and the, the the media over the coming weeks to keep bringing things to your attention if you've got anything you'd particularly like us to discuss feel free to let us know otherwise i hope you enjoyed the b2b impact and we'll see you next time thanks a lot